To fuck around is human. To find out is divine. This is the I Refuse Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the I Refuse Podcast. It is I, Mr. Fox. I wanted to start off this episode continuing from the last episode. The most troubling parts of an abusive revelation is oftentimes the response to it. So, from Surviving Diddy, which at this point at the I Refuse podcast, we're up to three parts of the discussion between this side of the podcast and our YouTube channel. From the Cassie revelations outlined in her filing slash lawsuit, which has since been amicably, and I'm putting that in very, very, very loose air quotes against Diddy, is that he is a physical and sexual abuser and assault perpetrator that uses force and manipulation. People are more upset over the idea that Diddy may be bi than the reality that he abuses women. We're still in this hell. I remember a while back a question was posed on social media as it pertains to high-powered celebrity men. If it ever came out that Michael Jordan was gay... Would dudes give up homophobia or give up Jordans? Said to myself, now that's the real gag. Point is, the sexuality isn't even the matter. But it's interesting how people will show their hand and true feelings about women and men. What their place is, how they should be in the eyes of others. It tells the rest of us that the value system in this culture is... All about show and image and presentation. And there truly is no protection for women. And it all just comes down to attitude. They said it was, they would say it was Hollywood turning our men gay, but not address the elephant in the room that is the sense of entitlement that powerful men feel they have over women in subordinate positions, either in the workplace or in Cassie's case. A much younger woman that comes to the table with no power and no position in life. In the last few days, since our last episode, there's been several revisits that we've undertaken over here at the I Refuse podcast to several moments, either in reality TV or in interviews conducted by women that were previously associated with he was puffy then. In the last episode, which was Surviving Daddy Part 2, we explored a reality TV moment that happened in the, I believe, the third season of Making the Band, where during the creation and production of bands and artists in the new wave, or, you know, of Bad Boy, that... Sean Combs wanted to do the creation of a boy band that ultimately became Day 26, the creation and production of a girl band that ultimately became Danny D. Kane. There was Donnie Clang at one point. During that season, we went back to a moment between Sean Combs, 
and Lorianne Gibson. And to some degree, Michael Bevins, who was hired to, I guess, assist Sean Combs in picking out the best dancers before moving to the next stage. So in the scene, there were auditions and every all the dancers were given an assignment to perform a series of counts, the same dance to the same piece of music. And they were to display that in front of Sean Combs, Michael Bivens, and his entire posse or whatever. Pretty much from the gate of the auditions, it was clear that a lot of these pe- a lot of the guys were just not up to the task. And the inference was Diddy was not aware of something. Thus, the fault was supposed to be on Lorianne. They get into, as they're going or taking a break, and they're going over the the photos, and he's inquiring and, con- and acting confused as to why these guys aren't getting it if the understanding and the agreement going into this was they were supposed to learn this routine the entire weekend. I thought, he was like, I thought they, they had all weekend and why am I not getting, you know, the the level of output reflected of the agreement that we had. So at some point, Lorian's like, that was just today. So one thing I know is that Lorian Gibson is a real choreographer, a real dancer. And what comes with that is these moments where or a test in her in her defense where the dancers are put under pressure to yield the best results. Unfortunately, that was not the assignment. And in this little brief moment, this is why it's very important. And this is why this particular moment stuck out to me when I was going over that 35-page filing document, is that one thing that he absolutely hates is not having control or power over a situation. A person that is, particularly women, that are of considerable self-worth, know who they are, can stand up for themselves, and are are legit. He he can't he can't he can't take it. And in this moment, roughly all of about five seconds, he goes from speaking to her just out of cur- in a curious tone to kind of well just essentially like zapping out on her and it's it's like a switch went off in front of the cameras and she matched his energy and things just kind of escalated from there so for the longest time there was not access to the to the footage to kind of revisit and the show in its original run you'll only see of course the edit where 
you see them kind of going back and forth a little bit, but then it cuts to a second camera in the other room with the dancers that can overhear the, the argument, thus cutting out view of what's going on in that room. Lorianne still stands her ground, cusses him out. There is some fast movement from Mike Bivens telling her she's being disrespectful and all this other stuff. But what we never see is anything that's outlined later on. So what a lot of people do not know is that not too long after that incident, it was said that she filed charges, Lorian Gibson filed charges against Michael Bivens and Sean Combs claiming that Michael Bivens put his hands on her and that one of the men threw a chair at her. Very, very hostile, very aggressive, very violent, very violent. So when we get into this whole idea of, oh, we got to protect women and we got to do this and do that, yet you don't see enough men talking about it or enough women talking about it and reflecting or unpacking any of the attitudes or the positions that have been indoctrinated. Another, in the last couple of days, we did another revisit. Thankfully, you know, social media has been, has been good to us over here at the RFU's podcast where People have uploaded on the timeline other clips from from those early years. One clip is a, I believe, a Barbara Walters or a Diane Sawyer interview of Jennifer Lopez in 2000. What year was that? 2002? It was not too long. After she broke up with him. And I'm going to play the clip. Hold on. Is this the one you were talking about who just cheated on you and treated you horribly and you just stuck it through? No, not that one. (laughs) That was another one. Um, And what about Sean Combs, Puffy P. Diddy, the man who courted controversy, if not outright danger? He always seemed to be the one in control. We wondered, looking at the girl on the red carpet... Who was she? Was she afraid? Um, no. I don't think she was afraid. I just think that I, at that time, was, uh, cared very deeply, uh, for, for Sean. And, um, you know, we just, we just didn't have the same kind of ideals about life and family and stuff like that. And, just wasn't a good relationship for me. It didn't have so much to do with him as it had to do with me at the time. I had to learn um, to care about myself a little bit more and put up certain boundaries of what I would accept and wouldn't accept. Because oh, I is mean, this the one you just, were talking about? Who just everyone is waiting for Jennifer Lopez to speak on what she saw because we remember this. On December 27, 1999, Jennifer Lopez, Sean Puffy Combs, and Puffy's 19-year-old rap protege, Jamal Shine Barrow, walked into Club New York, a Manhattan night spot near Times Square. 
And it was not a private event. Jennifer Lopez was here, Puffy Combs was here, uh, there were a lot of professional athletes here, it was a great party. It was weird that Puff and Jennifer were at that club because that was kind of like a very regular hip-hop club. No A-list celebrities go down. We had a bunch of ballers in there and a couple of them that were just being extremely antagonistic towards Puffy and his group of friends. From that point forward, you know, uh, alcohol kept flowing and tension kept building. Puffy and Shine allegedly got into an argument with another partier shortly before 3 a.m. Someone tossed a wad of cash at Combs as a sign of disrespect. Suddenly, all hell broke loose. And at some point, one of those people in that group fired off guns, another gunfire was had. Shine was among the shooters. It was a scary thing to have happen to you, to be standing somewhere where bullets go past your head. Panic spread throughout the club. Jennifer got lost in the chaos. Everybody scattered so fast, she realized it. Puffy, <laughs> the bodyguards, everybody's like, she's there by herself. And someone, you know, managed to get her out of there. Inside, three people lay wounded. Outside, Lopez found Combs. According to police reports, the couple jumped into the backseat of his SUV. Puffy's driver and his bodyguard were in front. Officers arrived as the SUV pulled away. They ordered the driver to stop. Instead, he swerved around a patrol car and led cops on an 11-block chase. Police finally forced the SUV to pull over. Officers discovered a loaded gun on the front seat. Meanwhile, back at the club, detectives slapped the cuffs on shine. Everybody was booked, including Jennifer Lopez. They spent the night in the precinct. She was crying a lot. She was a mess. Probably what was going through her mind is her career flashing before her eyes. Obviously, nobody really wants to be arrested or handcuffed or, you know, go through all that kind of stuff. It's a really traumatic experience. Police charged Sean Puffy Combs and Jennifer Lopez with felony gun possession. Shine was accused of attempted murder and assault. Both men were released on bail. Charges against Lopez were dropped. The reason Miss Lopez was dismissed is because if you or I went into a car and sat in the back seat and a gun was found in the front, all cases would be dismissed. I want to say to, to you all face to face, I had nothing to do with a shooting that night in a nightclub, nor did Jennifer. Still, the tabloids kicked into overdrive. There were guns, there was a shooting, there was a car chase. And Jennifer Lopez was prominently part of this picture. She suddenly looked like a gangsta. She wasn't in trouble for anything, but you couldn't get away from the media coverage of how she was involved in the situation. The bad press KO'd a relationship already on the ropes. Even if the two had been in love and were tight, they were fighting a big monster, and the monster was his charges and the paparazzi following them. It was getting on her nerves. It's like, okay, I was in a club. Somebody fired some guns. I didn't do anything. When we revisit, you know, public opinion of celebrity women, and we th- we say things like, oh, she's such a bitch, and she's such a this, and she's such a that. And we listen to and hear stuff like this coming from the mouths of not only her, but 
her family and her friends. And it makes you wonder, it's perfectly justifiable. Like, it's perfectly justifiable why women are so hard and why women feel empowered to speak up and speak out and stand up for themselves. And unfortunately, when you when it comes to that kind of relationship and the, t- and the time in which it happened, you know, the J-Lo-Sean Combs relationship happened at a time where he had pretty much ran through Kim Porter. And was essentially cheating on her with J-Lo. Because, you know, J-Lo is the new it girl. By the time that they were dating, she had had a couple of albums out. She was doing movies at the time. And she she was green. But that's not to say that old Sean didn't pop back up every now and then. Case in point, when she was on location shooting for Made in Manhattan, it was said that Sean Combs would regularly make appearances on set out of contesting and controlling and insecure feelings that his girlfriend was going to be making out with Ray Fiennes. Very, very unpredictable, right? You know, you when you think of insecurity and narcissism and jealousy and all these other toxic qualities, all paths lead back to the need to have power and control. Even if you're not in a position... You didn't finance, you didn't play a role in investments of mo- of these movies and of these jobs and of these opportunities. And you don't you don't care about other par- parties involved. You don't consider the damage you're doing because it's all about you. And you can't take it. So by the time the club shooting happened... You have all these other factors in play. Like, all this stuff is building up. You have all these moments of unpredictability. You you have all this chaos around this person. You have all this uh, mayhem. And at some point, you have to make an executive decision. And you... You theorize, you know, as a consumer, as a person that is on the outside of this. Jennifer Lopez is no punk. Jennifer Lopez is a Leo, a lion. And she's going to definitely speak her mind and, and speak how she feels. And that's not good for a person like Sean Combs. So what does he do, right? He pursues a younger woman, Cassie Ventura. And just like he ran through Kim Porter, um, a situation that went on for about 20 or so years, 15, 20 or so years, having kids by her, having kids on her, um, having a woman in the background 
at some point where both the other woman and Kim Porter are in the same house, displaying a, another relationship in public on Kim Porter, coming back to Kim Porter after things fall off, having more children with her, never marrying her, she somehow manages to pass away. You're the first person there, or the only other person there. They say she dies from pneumonia. How to go from cardiac arrest to pneumonia. And then all this other stuff comes out that you were also battering her. Okay, can't go back to J-Lo. J-Lo's moved on. Kim Porter dies. Here, you see Cassie. You run her through about 10 or 15 years. Script is the same. There are... There's a history of intimidation, coercion, and force to the point that Cassie disappears with her new boyfriend, now husband, and kids. Tries to pursue filing a suit before, but it falls to the wayside because she doesn't want to sacrifice her location. She doesn't want to give this man any indication of where she is because he has a history of intimidating current paramours, previous paramours, suspected paramours. But she finally gets the courage to file and successfully files. It goes through the process. The news breaks out to the streets. She has all the receipts outlined in the 35 pages and it's a win for her. But yet and still, yet and still, there's pushback on Cassie. Yet and still, when the filing leaks out that Tiana Taylor is divorcing Iman Shumpert, yet and still, yet and still, there's an expectation or, you know, an expectation for women to, to work it out or to stay and push through. Or there are a lot of questions on the outcome. Like, why now? And she got with a freaky dude. Like, it's just people want to backfill with their own opinions and their own narratives based off of their own experiences. And it's like, you don't know what you're talking about. Everybody's situation is different to a degree. But that doesn't negate that woman's experiences. So, Tiana Taylor, it came out that she filed for divorce. She filed for divorce um, back in January, which is eight months before where it got out that they had separated. That news broke in September. Along with the leak into the streets, you know, the blogs picked up the leak and had stories out and everything about it. The... Also were the details that she was married to a narcissist, a person that was resentful of her success and 
and was feeling threatened and feeling some kind of way about it. Even though he as a basketball player for the majority of their marriage relationship, what have you, was making more money, there were also texts that he would send her just questioning and wondering why, you know, or if, you know, she didn't have this, she wouldn't be this. And those, those kind of, that kind of languaging, you know, the gaslighting, the abusive, you know, the mind games, the psychological abuse and other things not, of course, not limited to the fact that he cheated on her multiple times. And for us here at the I Refuse podcast with that kind of revelation, it we could only look back to that IG post that she she made a couple of months ago, giving a full announcement that they are separated and that it wasn't due to no cheating that that was just a way of her again women protecting their men and their families and the images of all parties involved because they are aware that anytime a couple separates that People will instantly go ham against the man in in the relationship, especially if they're like a rapper or a singer, and especially in Amon Shumpert's case, an athlete, because that's the stereotype that all basketball players, male basketball players cheat and they have groupies and they have a side bitch and outside children. Yeah, like to a degree, there are still a huge number of athletes out here that once they get some kind of money and some kind of attention, they will put their dicks in any hole and they will have multiple children. And I'm not going to lie, when I first saw this, this news that they, that she had, she was divorcing him officially, I looked back at that IG announcement, I was just like, you know, you're just, you're saving face, but just like, you know, with Cardi B, where it was just like they're trying to cover the cheating with, oh, it was three, it was actually a threesome, and we were, you know, my mind went back to that, and it was just like, you are with a serial cheater, and you're trying to appease the rest of us when there are some of us out here that just want you to leave. Like, it having a threesome in a marriage or a relationship is nothing new, right? However, 
at some point there depending on the person and this isn't everybody depending on the person that you're with the person may use that as a reason to kind of like keep keep it going but at some point they start doing it more or wanting it more and you realize from time to time that you're feeling left out and then they're they're spending more time out of the house and being more secretive and having calls outside the room and in return it's like they're treating you like you're bothering them like you're irritating them And they're saying the kind of stuff that Iman Shumpert has been saying to Tiana Taylor the last couple of years. You know, the kind of things where the goal is to make you feel less about yourself. And that starts to wane, to weigh in on your mental health, your value. And you realize this isn't what marriage is supposed to be. And you realize you're doing more and giving more of yourself to protect the image of a man. Even though this is the same man that has verbally abused you, psychologically abused you, and, and, and is cheating on you. And you still have the strength and the resolve to be diplomatic. Yet and still, there are people out here who live by the clock of social media that will come down harder on Tiana because the timeline just isn't, you know, they'll they'll be incredulous about the timeline. Like, girl, you had us out here believing, oh, well, y'all were having threesomes all along. Was was y'all, were y'all really having threesomes? Or were you just using that to cover his cheating? And why would you stay so long after, you know, after he was texting you and these these things and playing with your mind and playing with your value and your worth as a woman and you still went to IG to protect him and release his statement playing in our face saying y'all weren't separated when you filed for divorce eight months before. Like, how dare you? To those people that are like that, I want you to go outside and touch a blade of grass. You know, I myself and my personal journey have come to believe to believe and understand that opinions are nothing more than the expectations that people have of others. That the anything that they say or lie towards another person, especially in that kind of tone, is them inflicting their expectations of you. 
regardless of the fact that y'all have never met and y'all don't even know each other. And it's funny, you know, we've gotten to a point in social media where it's glaringly clear that people will say and do anything on social media for engagement. Even if it's, if even if it makes no sense, even if it comes from out of nowhere, each comment, each response is that person's moment. And I'm in the comment section, scratching my head like, no way you thought in the draft that once you click post that the rest of us were going to agree with you. No, there's no way. There's just absolutely no way. But yet and still, you know, in the same breath, people want to talk about protect women. And it's like, this kind of the this kind of pushback when we think of Cassie Ventura, Jennifer Lopez, Tiana Taylor, is exactly why women don't speak out. And when we have women like Jaguar Wright who have been speaking about mysterious circumstances and how they're not that far off base when it comes to how it validates what has always been there, but nobody wants to admit it. And nobody can can just take a step back from the glitz and the shiny suits and the hits. That is very much possible for a person to have two sides. And very possible for powerful men even even ones whose beginnings were just as street and ratchet and and poor and downtrodden like some of us can still use their influence and their power to force a person to do something and it all just has it just starts with recognizing that this other person essentially has no other choice. And it doesn't hit people at all, even when the man in the relationship is with a grown woman with equal or greater public influence, um, industry standing, a household name as well, multi-hyphenated, not bound to his label and his agreements and his contracts, comes to the table with her own shit. And on top of that, speaks her mind. And you wonder why the relationship doesn't last that long. Because no woman has to put up with the shit that you're putting her through. Whether it's a nightclub shooting or you showing up at her her movie sets that she's the star of because she's she's possibly going to be making out with this other man. But, you know, let's just Harlem shake every summer. Crazy shit. 
like, and I'm just now realizing that I'm about almost 45 minutes into this episode, and I haven't even scratched the surface of the other things. Because I'm sick of you niggas. I'm just sick. I'm just sick of y'all. Just, like, you want it both ways. You want it both ways, and until more of us recognize the part that we play by ignoring these kind of situations or pressing against people without knowledge or enough knowledge and understanding. Like, it's terrible that divorce filings and you know because you're involved you have families involved in this was leaked to the streets however it's there's a silver lining in having it leaked because like i've said in the i refuse podcast hundreds of times before it's moments like these that show the rest of us the kind of people we have in our midst. Was that on the Bird app? Over the past 48 hours? You know, when it got to the Bird app that she had filed for divorce and that the documents had leaked, people were, you know, discussing the details. Out of all the things that were pulled, out of all the understandings and the FYIs that we pulled from this filing, oh, he cheated on her multiple times, and he resented her success and was jealous of all you know all of the success and the career opportunities and all this other stuff. And she gave myriad examples of the narcissism that she had to deal with. These ninjas out here decided to retweet with the story. Well, why didn't she stay and uh, work through the narcissism with, you know, the husband and, and, you know, why this, why that, you know, all the, the old school, traditional, rhetoric bullshit from the 50s and the 60s and the 70s that these ashy lip runny nose brown streak draws having motherfuckers want to say it's like shut the entire fuck up There's no working through narcissism. There's no working through a sense of entitlement and a sense of ownership over other people because you're a basketball star and you can't take being with an equally talented woman 
because that's a threat to you. And because you're a basketball star and you're so used to women getting so wrapped up in the prowess and the masculinity and the image that comes with being an athlete that when you come home and you're with a woman that you have us convinced is your queen that you know you you know to the public on the reality show and appearances and stuff it's all fun and games when she's at home and you can have her on your arm and available to you to pres- to support that image that once she t- she decides she wants to take a step back from music because she realizes that she's not getting the support from the label and she's not getting the the recognition she feels she deserves or the the love and she knows she's putting the work in you know she has awareness accountability and she knows what she brings to the table she decides she's going to get into other revisit other activities get into the choreography get into the production get into the direction like other powerful positions and you see that she's getting more opportunities while you went from an active basketball player to a former basketball player and you realize oh you're just that rusty musty nigga walking around in your drawers in your adidas track pants that you wore for two days now like you're the you're the stay-at-home dad just like Darius Dalton while she's in this city she's behind this camera she is doing choreography for this artist she is doing set production and shows and things of that nature like she's working her ass off you have the audacity Iman Shumpert to send these sex in efforts to shrink her to your comfort like this is this is the abusive shit that women go through in these celebrity relationships and we here at the I Refuse podcast are sick of you ashy lip ashy dick motherfuckers Placing this expectation for women in relationships, women that are married to guys, to push through and go through, grow through the narcissism. There's no such thing. Because men like Iman Shumpert are going to be that way. If you have to think about it, if. Even when things are going well, the kids are fed, the house is taken care of, things are kind of slowed down for you, 
but she's making things happen for the family. You have you have it pretty good. You have it pretty well. My theory is that it's always it's always been there. And it and it comes all back to what's been indoctrinated. Like all this all this madness, like screaming babies on planes and you know family you know, kids going to other people's houses and sitting on the furniture and on the back of the you know, little shit like that to how you treat other people. It comes back to how you were raised. Like who who is teaching you and who is showing you you know what's healthy and what's what's okay and what's what's decent and and what's what's right you know what i mean like for the longevity of relationships for the health and wellness for the kids you're bringing into this world like who is who is showing you this shit And you could even extend that to the company, the the friends that you have around you and the people that you hire to handle your business affairs. Like, where are you picking up this kind of shit? I would like to know. Iman Shumpert. Sean Combs. I would like to know. So before I get up out of here, I'm going to mind some white people business to hopefully comedic effect. (laughs) So George Floyd's murderer, Derek Chauvin, was stabbed up in prison. We here at the I Refuse Podcast would like to raise money to cover the medical bills and the mental health of the knife. Because it's truly been through a very rough and traumatic experience having to repeatedly enter and exit, enter and exit a racist and hellish space. The knife will be going through some very trying times. We'll probably have periods of PTSD, nightmares of seeing this man's face, seeing the the insides of this man, and will probably off itself. Derek Chauvin survived the attack. Derek Chauvin is alive. Derek Chauvin, I believe, is still hospitalized. Will probably be back in prison by the time you hear this episode. Case in point, Derek Chauvin is still alive. 
Dr. Night Young. Anytime this person's name is brought up, it comes across my computer screen, I will always be tickled because of a joke that Soccer Channing shared. It goes a little something like, Bitch, you want to talk about a gag? <laughs> so, we hear the RFU's podcast will be holding a benefit of some kind. Like I said, to cover the medical bills and the therapy, mental health bills for the knife. Because no knife should have to endure or go places and experience what this knife experienced. Switching gears again. Mr. Fox, the I Refuse podcast was shattered to to discover that Hall and Oates are really going through it. Came out, came out that Daryl Hall filed a restraining order against John Oates. Turns out that earlier this month, month of November, the legal proceeding was filed in Nashville. He filed a lawsuit against John Oates that falls under it falls under the category of contract and debt. It wasn't filed at just Oates, but also his wife, Amy and Richard Flynn in their capacities as co-trustees of the John Oates Teaser Trust. The filing also includes a motion for a temporary restraining order with a bond of $50,000. So, here's the thing. You know how, like, as time goes on, right? And for the longest time you've had some some reference or nostalgia or good feels from the music and thus the artists that create the music. And then at some point when you know the albums start to slow down, the output starts to slow down and these musicians <laughs> these musicians start to do like interviews and podcast appearances and things like that and you sit back and you're like you know this person is a bit of a prick in Hall and Oates' heyday right I wasn't really old enough at the time to really understand but I knew at some point you know when VH1 and pop-up video and shit like that was was popping couple of their music videos would come through there and I'd be like I like this shit like Method of Modern Love is the first song that pops up pops into the front of my mind and then Man Eater of course I was like this shit's kind of campy a little cheesy but the shit is bussing then I got older and then you know you get into more of their material 
she's gone, abandoned luncheonette, all that other stuff. And you're like, this shit is really, really fucking good. I was, I had the chance, the opportunity to see Hollow Notes live two years ago. You know, this was, of course, during the Panasonic, and we were more, things started to lift a little bit, like the restrictions with the mask and stuff, and it was at an outdoor venue. Really good show. Both of them were up there. It was at the Meriwether in Columbia. Great time. And I left that show thinking, oh, okay, well, things are still good, things are still cool, and I knew in the back of my mind that although both of their names, both of their images, both of them were on every album cover, that for the most part, Daryl Hall did the songwriting, and to a degree, did the the vocal production, all the other stuff. Rarely did I ever see, like, Oates' name listed as one of the songwriters. But then, you know, put that in the backseat, kept going. But yet and still, right, it's still Hall and Oates. In my mind, it's like, both of their names are on the bill. They're promoted and listed and billed as two separate acts. Like, a lot of people don't understand that, like, when you have a separation in the names, whether it's a group or a duo, you get more money. So I thought, okay. You get more money, you're essentially paying for two acts. But when John, when when Daryl Hall, sorry, when Daryl Hall stopped by Bill Maher's um, show, hold on. So back in 2022, Daryl Hall stops by Bill Maher's um, little show podcast and he has this to say. I'm sort of doing that myself, you know. I mean, yeah, yeah. But you have a—I mean, you have a partner, so it's a little different. I don't have a partner. You think John Oates is my partner? You still tour together, don't you? Yeah, but he's not my partner. Well, you're—he's my business partner. Uh, Oh, jeez, look what I've stumbled into here. He's not not my creative partner. Okay, I'm not not trying to. I was just saying, I know that you guys still tour and put out records. So to me, that's a partner. I mean, it's like yeah, we don't put out records. <laughs> what was the I mean, last record you put out with? And I think uh, it was ten years ago. That's fairly. Let's see, I'm sixty-six, uh, Daryl. So that's like, like yesterday to me. I understand for the kids, uh, that's not. But to me, that's fairly recent. It's twenty-first century. John and I are brothers, right? We, but we are not creative brothers. We are business partners. We did a lot of stuff. We we made records called Hollow Notes together. But we do. We we've always been very separate, and it's it's a very important thing for me. <laughs> well, you, but you certainly weren't separate 
on the records and you i don't mm. and, and were you separate creating them no we were separate on the records too what does that mean i, I i'm okay, not yeah. hearing the harmony i'm not hearing you know what song, i love about you know that song kiss on my list of course i did all those that's all me well, that's okay. all me on those harmonies that's me that's just a daryl demo i mean i'm sort of doing that myself you know i mean i'm sort of So even with my understanding that with like duos or group acts that the reality is that there will be some tracks or all the tracks where it's like one and this is not all acts. This is like some where it's essentially just one person from the trio or the group backed by studio vocalists or when it's a duo that even though there's two voices on the track one person actually wrote all the parts but out of I don't know diplomacy and equality lists the other person as a songwriter in addition to themselves. Even though they wrote all the parts, produced all the parts. It's probably not, when it comes to Hall's position, kind of going back to a point I made earlier to where, you know, you realize that a person is a prick. It's, it's not in good form, in my opinion, to go about it in this way. You know what I mean? Like, when I heard this coming out of Daryl Hall's mouth, it came off to me like he was minimizing and downplaying John Oates' impact, influence, contribution to an act, to a a very huge, influential, musical entity. We're talking about almost 50 years. Like, you just, it's just tacky to me. And it just takes away from the, the good feeling. Like, like, even if you were the person that did, I guess, 80, 85%. Yeah, you wrote the songs, you laid down the vocals, you did the demos and stuff like that. And let's say John Oates came in and added his zhuzh to it. He's still part of the magic. And it's so tacky when people get to a certain point in life, and it could be just Daryl Hall's getting to that age that most white men do, an age of honoriness, where it's just they inflate themselves. You know, things are kind of slowing down right now. The money's kind of slowing down. And it leaves room for this... uh 
this uh, inflating of oneself. Like, why at this point? Like, it, that's crazy to me. Um, right now, it's probably kind of died down right now, but like, black folks are like in shambles over this this dissension because it's like we've never in the 40 or so years of listening to hollow notes have never never thought it would get to this point like all the like the magic and the fun and the joy and the spirit and the soul like for 40 years and now y'all are fighting And it, it makes me wonder here at the RFU's podcast. Is the money kind of running low and it's causing Daryl Hall to to push for more power and control so the money keeps coming in? Because there there is there is a lot of money, potential earnings that can come that comes from having ownership of a license or having ownership of the name or having ownership of a trust and having that power and control. Such as who can perform live as the name of the band and when they can perform and how much of the material they can perform because at the end of the day when it comes to concerts and tours and performances you know the the name will get the money coming in but a lot of the people that come to these shows want to hear a certain certain songs and if Hall files an injunction or a restraining order that limits Oates from performing or going on tour as Hall and Oates, but doesn't actually have Hall, it's it's essentially him doing the vocals. And Hall limits the the songs he can perform live to songs that none of us want to hear that limits the the financial potential for John Oates. But nobody ever thinks about that, right? So, apparently, Hall's alleging that Oates is allegedly suing Oates to stop him from selling his share of their joint venture. Whole Oats Enterprises to Primary Wave Music, claiming it violates a business agreement between the pair. In response to the lawsuit, a judge has moved to temporarily block the sale amid the arbitration process and current legal proceedings. Hall was granted a temporary restraining order against Oats back on the 16th. Wrote that Oats and his trust cannot close on the deal until an arbiter arbitrator involved in the lawsuit inspects the sale or the order expires. It wasn't disclosed what the sale involves, but 
primary wave music has owned a significant interest in the Grammy-winning Grammy duo's song catalog since 2007, and Hall has expressed his dismay over not owning their catalog in the past. You know what's funny? When I got to that part of the story, it made me think of other songwriters, historic songwriters, part of huge bands of influence and impact who wrote all these songs, right? Whether solo or with a second person also in the same band for every album. All these songs, all these albums are hits, huge hits, and they still sell. And you don't own the catalog. Like, your band at the time was hot for about a good 10 years. You've gone on, and I'll get to who I'm talking about in a minute. You go on to have a solo career, but also start another band. Thus, you know, creating an influx of income while also generating revenue off of the songs your your previous band has put out like it's it's gained multiple lives and has continued to be commercially viable you don't think by the early 80s mid 80s late 80s that you would you should probably buy that catalog back but you don't do that you instead share this information with another pop artist who then in turn buys the catalog before you before you do it i'm talking about paul mccartney and michael jackson so that's wild to me when you think about it like you wrote all these songs and you don't own them and of course you know songwriting separate from owning your masters now i'm not going to go into the weeds as to the differences and what that means but to be there a whole wrote all those songs for all those albums you don't own any of those songs you don't buy the catalog but instead you as early as 2022 to my knowledge go on this minimizing and downplaying of john oates which tells me you're resentful that he somehow has a little bit more executive control and license than you do. Maybe John Oates did the groundwork and his due diligence on the business side of things, set himself up to be protected and put money aside from all those gigs back in the day to invest and you feel some kind of way but again it's like don't fuck up the magic don't 
don't fuck it up. But you, you, you see what I'm saying? Like, you have thrown yourself on the sword out of ego instead of practicing, I don't know, the foresight to own your catalog, buy your catalog, save up money to, to have, to bring to the table so you're not ultimately fleeced in your old age, which I think is which is ultimately happening because why are you so pressed about this, this over here instead of, I guess not buying your catalog and owning your masters, at least owning the songs you wrote. So Hall started the arbitration process on November 9th to prevent them from selling the primary wave music. It claims that Oates, team implied that the sale would be finalized within a matter of days despite the fact that an arbitrator had not yet been selected and that they had signed a letter of interest to primary wave music that revealed the musician's business agreement therefore violating confidentiality thus the entire unauthorized transaction is the product of an indisputable breach of contract the complaint reads per the outlet the case will be heard in court on November the 30th which is this, I believe, coming Thursday. Ain't this some shit, though? Like, you gotta think the kind of stain this would leave on a legacy. Like, I, I really just hope that other white bands... And listen, like I say, I don't typically go for white people business, but Hollow Notes... Is a very special. Is very special to me. Very very special. You know I'm an '80s baby, and um, I really want them to work it out. But I'm not going to forget that Daryl Hall is coming out like a prick in all of this. Oh, he's not my business partner. He's not. He's he's. Well, he's not my creative partner. He's just my business partner. And blah, 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 blah. like we don't need, we don't need full disclosure as to who did what in the studio and like you're both musicians at the end of the day. Like it wasn't just you up on that stage in the music video. Equally in title and name on every album and every marquee, like, like. Justice for John Oates, okay? Like, you want to act a fool because this man just wants to, to sell his share. And quite as his cap, you could benefit from a, a multi-million dollar sale of your catalog. You have artists with shorter catalogs and less amount of career time selling their catalogs for like 200 300 million dollars and i know it's special but why is this cap like the glory days are long gone you're not packing stadiums just let the sale go through instead of all this other madness or you ultimately ultimately look like a brick. So, like I said, I'm not 
always in white people business, but I had to get into this and talk about it because we the black people, kinfolk, are in shambles over this craziness between Hall. It went from Hall Notes to Hall versus Oats. I just want my brothers to work it out. I don't want y'all to... I don't want y'all to come to the same conclusion as other groups have in the past. I just want better for my uh, for my good hollow notes. Just saying. Before I get up out of here, I have one more thing to say. I know, I know, I see on the Refuse podcast. That I don't mind white people's business. I truly don't. But just like I have reverence for Daryl Hall and John Oates. Because they've been part of my childhood. I have a reverence for the supermodel era of back in the day. Anybody that knows me knows that I was transfixed on... Everything America's Next Top Model, back when it was on the UPN and I believe later on on the CW. So anyway, supermodel Linda Evangelista has come out recently and said, admitted that she is not interested in dating. (laughs) Girlfriend says she doesn't want to hear somebody breathing. So, in a recent interview, I believe with the Sunday Times, she says she's not interested in dating as she's disclosed her thoughts on finding romance again. I don't want to sleep with anybody anymore. I don't want to hear somebody breathing. She disclosed that the last time she dated was definitely before the cool sculpting, referring to the fat reduction procedure she had left. She said, left her permanently deformed and brutally disfigured after sessions from August 2015 to February 2016. She was previously married to Gerard Marie, the former head of Elite Model Management's Paris office. The pair tied the knot in 1987 when she was 22 and this man was almost 40 years old and they divorced in 1993. So... In case you haven't heard or haven't seen, back in September, Apple Plus, Apple TV, had a little docuseries called The Supermodels that covered Naomi Campbell, Linda Evangelista, um, I think Christy Turlington, and Cindy Crawford. And there was another, another model in that mix as well. Now, these were the the four or five supermodels that, like, ran the industry for the most part from the early 80s pretty much into the 2000s. And part of Linda Evangelista's story was her marriage to this guy and how she endured physical abuse, emotional abuse, and other kinds of abuse from this man who was also a man of power, a man of leisure, a man of influence. 
Remember how we were talking about Cassie and Diddy and all that other stuff. And how there is a clearly a common thread through these similar dynamics where a man of power forces or inflicts pain, whether psychological or mental, definitely physical and emotional, on women that are employed employed to them or um, owe them a sense of gratitude or are subordinate to them in some way or they want them to remain in a particular place in their dynamic. Supermodels, uh, the docuseries on Apple Plus TV was really, really good. Um, I know on a earlier episode of the I Refuse podcast, we had talked about Cindy Crawford essentially throwing um, Oprah under the bus over an interview from back in the day saying how she had her parade around on the stage like she was some kind of um, property and all this other stuff. And I went back and they played that uh, piece of the episode on the Oprah show where Cindy Crawford's on stage with her manager at the time. And it was just Oprah asking her questions. You know, of course... That was during the time that Oprah was in her exploitative phase and trying to compete with for numbers and get, you know, play the angle like, and essentially exploiting guests for numbers and being very theatrical and dramatic in her responses and attempting to relate to so many different guests from different backgrounds essentially her circus phase right and this is before jay springer came along and kind of blew the lid off of of everything but what's interesting is that in that part of the episode the super miles episode the cindy crawford goes over that we come to realize that the man next to her was her manager, her agent at the time, who during that time had a penchant and a predatory nature towards much younger women, some of which were underage. And of course, that comes out later on in the episode. So looking back at that, I realized Cindy was directing her energy towards the wrong person. You're literally sitting next to a man that sleeps with, has sex with, dates publicly women underage during that same time. You got to check out Supermodels, the docuseries on Apple Plus TV. Um, They go through their beginnings. They go through the industry. Of course, the death of Gianni Versace and their personal relationships to a degree. Um, and more importantly, their their bond with each other. And all of them still look good. Like I said, not normally in white people business, but I felt compelled to talk about Linda Evangelista and how interesting 
you know, women get to a certain age, they realize, I don't need to be married. I don't need to date. You know, I've been through enough early on. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of having to defend myself. I don't want to hear another person breathe. I don't want another person in my house. I don't want the stress and the drama and the responsibility that all comes with dating a man who doesn't give a shit about me. Sounds a little bit iconic to me. And just like in the case with Sean Combs, stuff that's come out about Linda Evangelista's ex-husband is that he's had a history, or shall I say accusations, have come out about towards him of sexual misconduct and rape towards her ex-husband from over a dozen women in 2020, which inspired her to come out in the docuseries of Supermodels about the physical abuse she endured while married to the same man. I'm trying to tell y'all, at some point, we will get to an understanding that there is definitely a connection to men of power and influence to coercion, force, and a sense of entitlement to women. Of course, her ex-husband's lawyer denies all the accusations. Evangelista, Evangelista told the Sunday Times that she didn't tell anyone about the alleged abuse at the time as she was afraid and doesn't know if anyone else knew. She said that she spent the money she earned from modeling getting out of her marriage as it was everything to her. Of course, she goes in to discuss motherhood in the interview. She spoke about a 17-year-old son, Augustine James Evangelista, whom she shares with her ex-partner, French businessman Francois Henri Pignol. Let me tell you something. Men ain't shit. I've said it thousands of times. And just when you think the international flair that attracts women or other men to to men makes some of us think that it's better, it's really not. Like, you think men over here in the United States ain't shit, it's it's worse in some other parts of the of the planet. And again, I'm like there is some generational shit that's passed down and cultural shit mixed in that boys pick up and they inflict those kind of things in their relationships asserting dominance, women should walk behind us, um, we are the brutes, we are brutish, we're the, you know, we're the, we're the conquerors, and we're entitled to this without any back talk. 
But Linda, Linda Evangelista said, I think the fuck not. Like I said, I'm not normally in white people business like that. But we here at the IRFUSE podcast have to talk about icons and iconic attitudes and educate and inform y'all along the way. Hope you guys have been enjoying this and you've been enjoying this episode and you've been enjoying the IRFUSE podcast. And this is where we will exult. So, this is Mr. Fox of the I Refuse podcast. Hope you've been enjoying season five so far. Hope you've been enjoying the YouTube channel so far. Hope you've been enjoying The Usual Suspects and the I Refuse podcast after dark. The link is on all of our social media platforms at I Refuse Podcast on Twitter, at I Refuse Podcast underscore between the words on Instagram, and it's also on our YouTube channel at I Refuse Podcast. Hope you've been enjoying us as much as we've been enjoying producing these episodes and all of our content across all the platforms. And we will catch you guys later. Until next time.